Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Tim Olson to discuss the myopia epidemic, what we should be concerned about, and how would the increasing rates not only affect patients, but rising healthcare costs around the world. Dr. Tim Olson is professor of ophthalmology, vitreoretinal surgeon, and a clinician scientist here at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Olson's main areas of research are regenerative approaches to end-stage macular disease and drug delivery platforms for proliferative vitreoretinopathy. He currently has NIH funding in both of these arenas. He's also studying the impact of the economic burden and retinopathy of prematurity. Dr. Olson serves as Secretary for Quality Care for the AAO. He's received numerous teaching and research awards, and we're thrilled to sit down with him today. Thank you. Welcome, Dr. Olson. Thank you. As a pediatric ophthalmologist, I diagnose myopia quite often, but you care for the complications throughout their life. And so we're excited to talk about myopia and the complications therein in our our patients. Um, I just Let's just start on a high level and talk about the epidemic of myopia itself. There's certainly a high prevalence of myopia in Asian countries, but the rate's going up around the world. Is this a genetic thing? Is it driven by environmental factors? Are we seeing both nature and nurture, or what's your take on it all? An epidemic that was first recognized in Asia, and our Asian colleagues say, look out, the epidemic is moving west. And why that is, perhaps to get to your second question, perhaps environmental, what's happening in our society today that could be driving this? Just like most things in medicine, we know there's a genetic and an environmental role. So think of some genetic conditions like Stickler syndrome, Wagner syndrome, Knobloch syndrome, the extracellular collagen matrix that can be defective leading to increasing stretch of the eye and axial myopia. So we know there's a genetic component in some pathologic conditions. But what about if you're parents are both nearsighted, are you at higher risk? And there's, I think, up to 150 different genetic loci at this point located, specifically that are suspected of being myopia-related. But I don't think that explains the entire situation. And that's why the near work and inside activities and perhaps the cell phones that we all use and iPads may be driving this as well. So behavioral activities, increased reading, a shift from agrarian-based economies into more service and technology-based economies may be driving some of this as well. So yes to both. I feel like with some of the environmental factors that would increase your risk, maybe we would just see increases in some of the kind of lower diopter myopias, but are we seeing increases in high myopes as well? So that over six diopter level, is it both or kind of one or the other? It's both, definitely both. And we see that in Asia as well as in the Western population-based studies. In fact, the NHANE study was probably the best study up until Prashant Taylor, one of our residents at Mayo Clinic, looked at the Rochester Epidemiologic Project data. He and uh, his sister helped him put some of the data graphics together, uh, Shreya uh, Taylor and also a medical student from North Dakota, Colin Asham all contributed to this, but mostly Prashant. Specifically, you, you know, as your expertise in retinal conditions, 
myopic degeneration will happen at some point with increasing frequency at a certain refractive status. What threshold is that happening? And is this something we're hearing about and it's actually still a rare condition or is the frequency of this impacting patients at a meaningful level? It's a binary answer to that question and that is the higher the level of myopia at a younger age, the more likely you'll see pathology. And I'm sure you've seen retinal pathology in your Stickler's patients who have degenerative changes, lacquer cracks, uh, detached retinas, giant retinal tears, all the pathology associated with high myopia. I'm sure you see it in your extreme young patients. But even in the moderate and high myopes that you don't see pathology in a pediatric clinic, we see them as they hit their 50s, 60s. They start to get their vitreous separation, their vitreous liquefies. They start to get vitromacular traction. They get macular holes at a higher rate that are harder to fix. And so, yes, it's a binary that is both axial length and age both contribute. So you've just listed all of these ocular complications that we can expect from these high levels of myopia. And if we're thinking that the global burden from this myopia epidemic could reach a billion people, what are we going to do to reduce the ocular complications? How can we reduce all of these complications that we're bound to start seeing in such high numbers? Yeah, so you're correct. We're going to see them in high numbers. The cataract surgeons out there are going to see more complications after cataract surgery. Uh, as we fix macular holes, they're just harder to fix in high myopes. We see choroidal vascularization, et cetera. So how do you prevent? So that's a great question. I would actually turn that to Dr. Bothan and say, really, it's going to occur in his population. That is, that 6- to 13-year-old population when you really see the acceleration of myopia. And what behavioral activities are happening in that stage? Are kids playing outside? There were two studies in China that looked at 40 minutes of forced outdoor play. You had to go out to playground, and then another study looked at two hours, and 40 minutes was good at reducing myopia, and two hours was even better. So outdoor activities, whether it's sunlight, whether it's defocusing, whether it's looking at infinity, and maybe just getting a break from near work is important. And then the issue of low-dose atropine in prevention, which is really an interesting story. The Adam-1, Adam-2 study out of Singapore and the LAMP study. It's interesting because Don Tang, who's the PI of that project, thought that they would use 1% atropine in the treatment group and 0.01% in the control group. Fast forward, we know that, that probably that extremely low dose is actually more effective and less regression that he used as a control group, not knowing the effects at very low dose. So this is a dose that's even before you get pupillary dilation and inhibition of accommodation. So the fascinating thing about atropine use, low-dose atropine use, and I would, again, turn this to Eric in your population, is are you using this, and have you found it helpful, and are parents compliant with that low-dose atropine? Yeah, it's been a, an amazing journey to see some children who continue to progress in their myopic refractions stop and then others that you start it and it does nothing and they continue to progress. Mm -hmm. Certainly I think behind the scenes there's probably a compliance component to some of these families. I tried it my own daughter for a while when she was 12 years old and it didn't go very far. Every family's degree of myopic concern for their in their own perception and I would just say compliance with another medication added to the list it makes compliance a little difficult. It's hard. You got to get a re, you got to obtain the refills regularly. Currently, many pharmacies ask for a new refill every two weeks. 
people have argued, even though the potency is going down, that we could extend it and use it longer or maybe t- switch to twice a day beyond that. But there are concerns over the shelf life of what the dilute drug um, and preservative would be over time. So there, I'd say each family, just like other management steps we do, whether it's patching or glasses wear, is a, a coaching over the benefits and the risks and an encouragement. But certainly the discussion has gone from being uncommon five years ago to now being part of every practice with patients that are myopic. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be interesting to see, in addition to just atropine, there are a number of ideas, whether contact lens, ortho-K, other options of myopia prevention, that the question would be, if we put them on top of each other and stack therapies, mm-hmm. would it even have a greater effect? What capacity do we have beyond just dilute atropine? Mm-hmm. Thoughts on that? Have you? Well, the, you, you know, reviewed? the ortho K, uh, you know, using contact lenses to shape the cornea and decrease myopia has been shown to reduce axial length definitively. So it works. And one thing that may be flying under the radar is what are the complications mm-hmm. of overnight contact lens wear? And are they being underreported? There's a black box warning on the FDA approval that these are not approved in children of certain ages. So there are some unknowns about the complication and the risk profile with ortho but we know it works, and, and it's a great question. You have such an expertise in other retinal conditions associated with myopia, and you've listed some of them already today. Thoughts on using these approaches, including dilute atropine, in populations or genetic conditions associated with myopia, whether it's sticklers or whether it's knoblock, um, people post-ROP treatment. There have been a lot of discussions over, can we be implementing our myopia progression techniques in a standard myope in some of these very non-standard myopes? And that... Just share your thoughts on that. I just don't know. That's uh, that's a great question. I think we need lots more data to find that out. But um, the complications in advanced myopia, I think, affect everybody in in ophthalmology. And and as an orbital oculoplastic surgeon, Dr. Tooley, perhaps you can share with me what's the nucleation like in an axial length of 35 versus 24. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, that's a very reasonable question. And it's certainly more challenging. I mean, everything's more challenging in an eye with a high axial length, not just intraocular surgery. Mm-hmm. Depending on the configuration of your orbit, whether you have a deep orbit or a shallow orbit, but doing an nucleation, the extraocular muscles might be more difficult to make sure you have adequate kind of purchase on those. And then just removing the eye in general can be a lot more challenging. Usually you make it work, but it definitely can be more challenging. The sclera can be thinner. Mm -hmm. A lot of these eyes have hardware around them. They already have a buckle or they have tubes and that Mm -hmm. makes everything more challenging. If things are more fibrotic and scarred, if the orbit's been violated before, Lots of things to think about. So it's not just intraocular right. surgery. You're point. absolutely right. Everything gets more challenging. So you said something that that struck me, and that is thinning. I, that's what I tell my patients. Everything gets thinner. Mm-hmm. It's like if you took a balloon and stretched it, made it bigger, everything's thinner. So as you get older, membranes get more fragile. So I very meticulously discuss eye rubbing and trauma. A small amount of trauma in a high myope can lead to disasters, lacquer cracks, corollinea vascularization, hemorrhages, detachments, tears. So I really harp on please don't rub your eyes and avoid mild trauma, 
especially in large axial links or high axial links. Well, that's fascinating. Mm. And a good thing to think about yeah. when they're undergoing surgery too, even if they were having lid surgery or any kind of orbit surgery. Yeah, good point. Be gentle. Be, yeah, good point. Yeah, it's striking how many of these patients are affecting all of our care. For me as an adult strabismus surgeon, it's become more and more common that the workup is evaluating the orbit and the globe and the muscle position and pulleys and changes that have to, that can be magnified with myopia. In terms of that impact and going beyond one specialty, I just think about the global impact even on lost productivity mm -hmm. in the setting of myopia. Thoughts on that? Or I know you have yeah. expertise that way. Well, in the economics of cost effectiveness, cost utility, all the cost analysis tools that you can apply for direct, indirect income loss, as you were pointing to, loss of productivity to the GDP, all, all of that can be calculated. And in Singapore, they ex estimate that each year, myopia alone costs the country three quarters of a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. Just in and Singapore is not a big wow. country. And another interesting economic statistic is that it's estimated that for each 10% increase in the U.S. of myopia, just straight myopia, and remember we went from 35% up to 68% roughly, each 10% increment costs a billion dollars in healthcare resource utilization. So it's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, that's tremendous when you start thinking about the numbers. Yeah. And also kind of putting this into context of where we are today with the global pandemic with COVID-19. Do you think there's been any influence on kind of some of the digital eye strain we're talking about induced by COVID and the change in culture and how much time we're spending on screens and not being outdoors, just, just a huge cultural shift. Is that going to affect these myopia rates? The uh, papers are just coming in on that right now. And in January of this year, JAMA Ophthalmology reported a definite change in higher levels of myopia during the COVID pandemic in the pediatric age range. So the, the short answer is yes. Uh, and we have data to support that at this time. It'll be interesting to see as the pandemic evolves and behaviors change and, and whether that number is going to drop back down or are we in a perpetual cycle? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. Public health people need to really tune their ears to this and watch it carefully. Prashant Taylor is actually going to look at our rep data to try to tease that out in the later years post-COVID using the electronic record in addition to the REP study base. Well, in light of our focus on refraction, I'd say thank you for focusing our attention, but also our knowledge on in this um, wonderful subject and appreciate your expertise and time with us today. Thank you both. Thank you so much. You can find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website. Thank you for listening, and we definitely look forward to sharing more next week.